Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's uh, Signpost webinar, our final webinar for, for uh, 2023. Uh, and this morning, I'm delighted to welcome uh, Aina Nilauna. Aina, you're, you're very welcome uh, this morning. Yeah, thank you very much, Pat. We're, we decided, I suppose, after 119 serious environmental or 190 serious environmental topics, we might lighten the mood a, a little bit and, and talk this morning about uh, uh, Christmas traditions and, and nature. And, and when we, when we th- thought about that, the, the one person that sprung to mind that would really do a job on it was yourself. So you're, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I hope I hope it lives up to this billing. Maybe it's a very serious one as well. You know, you maybe so. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're also joined by our uh, questioning out this morning, Catherine Keane. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, everybody. Listen, uh, I suppose without further ado, Aina, if you're ready to 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 go, we'll we'll uh, start your 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 presentation. The whole idea of Christmas at this time of the year goes back very much longer than the birth of Christ. In fact, yesterday we had the solstice, we had the shortest day of the year. And this is what this whole festival of the end of the year is all about. It was a festival to the end of the darkness and the day is lengthening again. And when we had our farmers, our Neolithic farmers, you know yourselves, farming began 10,000 years ago and it spread across, it spread across from the east. And once people could actually grow, had farmers to grow their food, everybody wasn't hunter-gathering. So the people that had enough food and didn't have to spend day and night getting it were actually able to sit around and think and look at the sky and do all kinds of things because they were the same people as us 10,000 years ago. And one of the things that worried them enormously was the, 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 the behaviour of the sun. The whole of life, the whole of the crops, the whole of where they lived and life lived all depended on the sun. And of course, the sun rose in the morning and went down in the evening. That was fine. But it also, as the year went by, was lower and lower and lower in the sky. And um, they adored the sun, the sun god Lu. In Ireland, the sun god was Lu. And there were sun gods in other other areas called it different names as well. But the sun god Lu, anyway, you know, one year he might desert them altogether. They might have been so bad and so terrible and doing awful things that the sun god would actually not come back at all. So there was great concern about where the sun was in the sky. And this is what led to that big, those big megalithic tombs that we know about now, about Newgrange and Nouth and Douth and the boxes and where the sun shone in on the lowest day. On the lowest day. And yesterday, I think they got a bit of a light into Newgrange. So that even 5,000 years later, that angle is still right. So then, of course... They were good. The sun the next day didn't go down any lower. It didn't miss the light box. And 22nd, it was coming back. It hadn't got any worse. The 23rd, it wasn't worse either. In fact, the 24th, it was getting better. Yes, yes, the thing is coming back. We weren't bold. Lewis isn't going to abandon us. And it is great. So they went out to celebrate the fact that they hadn't been abandoned by the sun god. They hadn't been abandoned. The sun was coming back and all was well. Now, if you think of Ireland... 5,000 years ago in the Neolithic times, it was covered in forest, anywhere that forest. We had bogs and we had sand dunes and things, but but then most of the land was covered in forests and the forests were native forests, which were essentially deciduous ones. We had a few evergreen species, but not many. But one of the ones that we did have was holly. So the woodlands all around, Lou hadn't abandoned them, out into the woodlands, 
trees are all dead, no leaves on them, nothing. Well, they're not dead, but they're certainly in hibernation. And there in the low rays of sunshine, you have the leaves of the holly listing in the sunlight and the berries on them. Yeah, there was life in that. Life. And so they brought it into their houses to honour the sun god, Lou. Lou, who had not abandoned them. And here was a bit of life in the woods, proving that the, the force hadn't gone out. And indeed, Ivy was also there. Ivy is also an evergreen. I Ivy is also very um, commonly found in woodlands and indeed everywhere else. And there it was. I just got a bit off just the wall across the road from where I live here in Dublin. And there's berries on it at this time of the year. So we had berries on the holly, berries on the ivy, indicating to us that this in fact was life, that the sun hadn't gone. So we're looking at a festival that celebrates the sun god Lou. And we still bring in holly and indeed some of us bring in ivy as well to put on the grave. And we don't think sometimes that we're actually carrying on a pagan celebration that's 5,000 years old, which is which is truly amazing indeed. Now, when Christianity came, I mean, this, this wasn't just an Irish festival. This was actually a big festival of the dark called Saturnalia. And Saturnalia was a big Roman festival. And, of course, the Romans naturally weren't as good and pure and holy as the Irish. So Saturnalia, apparently, what I gather, concluded with all kinds of them. Um, all kinds of carry on that weren't very good and all kinds of cabbling and I don't know, we won't we won't dwell on the details of the terrible festival anyway, but it was very bad indeed. So it was um the Roman emperors were wanting to put an end to such filth and carry on. And of course when you got to the stage of Constantine, who was the first Christian Empire emperor, they decided that they were going to actually make that Christian. So this was the time that Christ was born. So when you had your festival, you were now celebrating the birth of Christ rather than the sun god Lou and all this paganness. And so very cleverly, they didn't abolish it. They didn't say you can't be having a festival at this time of the year. They just completely repackaged it. They gave it a different meaning. And of course, lots of us grew up maybe with the thought that when you brought in the holly, the holly, the prickles on the holly were supposed to represent the, the crown of thorns and the berries on the holly were the blood of Christ. So it was given a Christianized version. So even though we know from the Roman emperor records of the of the what you call it, the census and that, that Christ was apparently born in September, that didn't matter because they did such a good, a good whitewash job on the on the business that we all it's a Christmas festival now and Christ was born and that's it. And the Ivy then is the is the runner up for being alive as well and bringing it in at Christmas. Now in Ireland we don't have the the so no, did I, did I wait a moment now? I thought I had a I thought I had a mistletoe, but my mistletoe seems to have escaped. But mistletoe is another one that that is actually um, brought in at Christmas. We bring in the mistletoe for kissing under, and this is a new a newfangled idea altogether. We didn't have mistletoe when I was young in County Louth. We didn't have mistletoe, but mistletoe is the same general idea. I mean, the the, the picture I don't be able to show seem to be able to show you now is a picture of mistletoe growing in the botanic gardens on trees. Now, mistletoe is a parasite, a complete parasite. And so when the trees have lost their leaves in the autumn time and they're not there in the winter time, you get these great big bunches of living stuff on the trees themselves. And it's, it occurs in the south of England, naturally, and occurs all over France and middle Europe and that sort of thing. And again, not understanding this whole idea of parasitism and that kind of thing, this was seen to be something that was alive, 
during the darkness, during the winter months. So it must have some magic associated with it. It must have some special powers and properties that it could be living while other things were, were dead. So mistletoe was the equivalent, was another of these, you know, adoration plants that belonged to another world that was alive in the wintertime when other things weren't and was brought in and had magical properties. Now, the mistletoe has the white berries on it and the berries are very sticky and the birds that eat it, particularly the mistle thrush, that's the name, the mistle thrush gets its beak all covered in this mucusy, slimy stuff when it does eat them and it wipes its beak off of the trees because the seeds have to be inserted into the actual bark of a tree in order for it to grow. Now, there's a bit, there's, I think there's some apple trees down in Carlow or Kilkenny that have these in it and they have it in the botanic gardens but it isn't really native to Ireland is the mistletoe but it's one of the Christmas plants nonetheless and we all we all spend money buying it now to hang in the hall to kiss on weary visitors that come because if you kiss onto the mistletoe the magic will apply and you're sorted whether you're sorted for the whole year or for life or whatever I mean as I said they didn't have them down in County Louth when I was out Curtin we got on very well without the mistletoe but anyway, the next one that I do have to show you here now is the Christmas tree. Now, there's no such thing as a Christmas tree as such. A Christmas tree, which is what species is, is it a particular tree? No, it's not. And again, it's a, it's a European thing. And it is the whole idea of something living with leaves on it alive in the darkness of the wintertime. Now, this was um, a German custom that, Trees were brought in and some outside brought in to celebrate living things. And it was brought to these parts by um, Charlotte. Charlotte was the wife of George III. And this was at the beginning of the 1800s. And she came with these foreign notions of bringing trees from her native Germany over to England. But it didn't, didn't take off too well until we got to the stage of Albert. Now, Albert was the husband of Queen Victoria. And as we know, Queen Victoria ascended to the throne in the 1840s. And Albert, being a German fellow, he really wanted to have a Christmas tree. So he brought it in and decorated it with candles. And there was this wonderful picture of himself and Victoria and all of the family around the bottom of it and candles all over it and all of this. And this, of course, he was the influencer, if you like, way back 150, 200 years ago. And when people saw that the king had, or the queen's husband, had had a Christmas tree in their house, the good and the great all wanted it. And as we were part of the whole rigmarole at that stage in the 1850s, this spread to these islands. But certainly it only began in the very grand houses, in the very posh places. Uh, it didn't happen in regular houses. And again, in the 1950s, I don't ever remember Christmas trees inside in houses at all. I suppose my mother having seven kids wasn't bringing in something that was going to have candles on it and you'd be lighting the candles. Can you imagine how long that would last in a house with seven kids? And you wouldn't. So people didn't really bring in Christmas trees until the advent of electric bulbs. And you was looking at the reeling back the years last night and remembering all the, the hassle you had for putting on the electric lights on the tree. And if one of them was missing, they wouldn't work and all that carry on. But that made that made bringing the tree in safely. And that was that was something that that was good. But the thing, the question was, which tree did you bring in? What is a Christmas tree? And a Christmas tree is an evergreen tree that you bring into your house in winter. And there's no particular species that it actually is. So. I don't know what they brought in in Germany. I don't know what the tree that your man has there in the card or some sort of a, a, a big fir or something. But the one that we did use in Ireland for a long time was this one here, the spruce tree. 
And the spruce tree was grand. You brought it in and there it was, a bit prickly now, but grand. But of course, because the leaves are all on pegs, peggy spruce, it wasn't long till they dried up and fell off. And if we used to bring out about all, oh, if it lasted on from Lullagnamon, you were bringing out a skeleton. There were no leaves at all left on it. And you were hoovering up and sweeping up the wretched leaves off the sofa and off the floor and everywhere else for the next six months. So from a commercial point of view, the spruce wasn't doing so well because of the actual um, way that the leaves grew on the branches on these little pegs. Pine trees could be used as well. And indeed, this, this was the case. There were some pines that were the right shape. And they held on to their needles a bit longer and they were brought in and decorated. And then, of course, what, what we're having nowadays are um, fir trees. Fir trees have a, the leaves are, are better stuck on. They have a little notch at the end of the leaves. We all know the way the fir, the, end, the ends of the leaves of the fir all have little notches on them. So they're not as prickly as your, as your spruce tree is. So, you know, as a result, it doesn't prickle so much and the leaves seem to stay on a bit more. But you know, nowadays they have all kinds of swanky stands and the stand is like a bucket and you put water in it to keep the to keep the leaves on the tree. I suppose it depends too on how warm the house is. I mean, if you were only putting this thing in the good room, which was when you lit the fire, the whole sofa and everything steamed gently as all the, as all the damp came off it, your room wouldn't be as hot as people's rooms are nowadays. But certainly... The Christmas tree is something that has certainly caught on enormously, and there's a great there's a great um tradition now for the last seventy years, I suppose, of, of Christmas trees with all kinds of Christmas lights and things like that. And of course, somebody was ringing me up the other day to say, "Isn't it terrible cutting down all these trees and bringing them into the house, and this is causing defoliation and terrible carry on throughout the whole country?" So I had to point out that in actual fact, the trees are what seven years old, that they're grown as a crop that they're living things, that they're not statues, they're not the Taj Mahal. You can grow more. It's a sustainable thing. You can plant more trees. The trees will grow. They're made of carbon. I know there's a certain amount of, of disruption in planting in the ground and that, you know, soil disturbance and that sort of thing when they are being planted. But, but certainly it is to be recommended above having an artificial tree made from totally plasticky things far, far away. I think a lot of them are made in China. So the, the air mileage for bringing them back here. And then you have to keep your artificial Christmas tree for at least 25 years to make up for the carbon footprint of it. So if you keep it for longer than 25 years, you're probably doing better than having real trees. But Lord, what would it look like after 25 years of being poked at in the house? I don't know. So anyway, the poor man, he was going to make a radio or he was going to make a television program, I think, with me in it, giving out about Christmas trees. Had to go off and think about something else because I wasn't I wasn't going to give out about having Christmas trees. I'm, I'm not the Grinch. I'm not Scrooge. Uh, humbug. Oh, yeah, there's the, there's the tree with the mistletoe on it now. Sorry, I, I obviously had it there instead. That's the tree that's in the Botanic Garden. So that actually grows quite well in Ireland. So again, there's nothing wrong with Ireland that we can't have mistletoe growing here. Like everything else, the mistletoe didn't get here. You had to have the trees, you had to have the birds with the berries and, you know, do thrushes fly across the ocean carrying berries on their wet beaks? No, they don't. And the mistletoe didn't spread naturally any further than the south of England. So that's why we don't have it. Anyway, it's actually it's actually a semi-parasite on trees so that we're probably as well off not having it but I mean, that's what it would look like. So you can imagine in a world where all the trees have no leaves on them and then you get this, this mistletoe growing in great abundance, again with berries on it, when nothing else was alive, it certainly seemed to be a magical property. So so this is the kind of the first, 
definition, if you like, of Christmas from a point of view of the plants that are around at this time of the year. And because we're celebrating the fact that light is coming back, the winter is gone, back of it's broken as and from tomorrow, the days are getting longer. My mother-in-law used to be nearly crying on the 22nd of June as and from that day, the days were getting shorter, she was paying. Whereas we're all delighted for a woman is dead and gone, God be good to her. But they need to be moaning at the end of June because the days were getting shorter. So we're turning that in the, on its head now and we're saying from tomorrow, the days are getting longer. Now, let's move on to the animals associated with Christmas. This I couldn't get a better picture than that of the man himself. He went off into the distance with his reindeer and his sleigh. So, reindeer. There's a reindeer. Now, the reindeer we don't have in Ireland. We did have them as a native species gen just after the end of the last ice age when, when the ice melted and we had tundra regions and tundra grasses and we had the giant deer and we had reindeer and that sort of thing. But, of course, as the, as the climate improved and the world heated up and we got climax vegetation of the woodlands, the reindeer were gone. But if you look at the reindeer, interestingly, male and female reindeer both have antlers. Now, all the deer we have in Ireland, all the species, in fact, the species anywhere, the seeker deer, the red deer, the, the fallow deer, it's only the male that has the antlers, the female doesn't. But in the case of reindeer, they both have antlers. And the antlers that the male has, obviously, is what the male do with their antlers you know, they're for fighting for, for women and you have stag fights and the rut happens before Christmas. The rut happens as the daylight begins to shorten. So you have the rut in September, October, maybe into November, but they beat the living daylights out of each other and the winner takes all because there's no mammy and daddy and baby Bambi. It's daddy, it's the, it's the, the male stag and he has all the women. So this is why it's called stag party, no doubt. So, and then once the, once that's done, the, the, the deer, the, the antlers fall off, the male deer, that's it, they've done their job and they will grow again the following year. But in the case of reindeer, the male do the fighting, same carry on as before, but the antlers fall off. But the females don't lose their antlers. The females are not going to be in calf. The females don't need to be losing bits themselves. They need all the calcium and everything else that they have. And they don't lose their antlers until the babies are born in the end of April. So if Santi... If Santi, there's the, there's the antlers falling off. They're just the reindeer now without his antlers. They've fallen off. They just break off naturally. The, the, the join where it joins onto their head breaks off. So there's your, there's your male your male reindeer at this time of the year. This is a picture from further north, obviously, where, where this happens. This is a female one, and she still has her antlers. This is one where um, I think it's in Scotland. They took a picture of this one. God, she could do it a bit to eat the poor creature. But she still has her, she still has her antlers at this time of the year. So if Santi has a sleigh been pulled with reindeer with antlers at this time of the year, it is female. So, you know, you have Rudolph and all of the other reindeer. Well, they're all olives. They're all female by the look of things. Although I did read something I, was, I wasn't allowed to say this on the radio when, when little ears were listening. But apparently the best deer pull sleighs and reindeer are actually used to, to pull things in, in far north. The best ones are the castrated ones, the ones that have been castrated so they're not fighting with each other and looking for women. And if a reindeer is castrated, he doesn't lose his antlers until after Christmas either. So you can take your pick with Rudolph. He's either a woman or he's a castrated male. And I don't think the, the children of Ireland were allowed to be hearing me saying this. So this is a secret among ourselves. I hope the children of Ireland aren't listening to this. But anyway, one thing that Santi's reindeer can do is fly. You know, this is definitely true. Now, where did... Where do we come? Where do we come by this? Well, if you look at this mushroom here, this is a lovely red mushroom called the fly agaric, and the fly agaric, fly agaric, A G A R I C, does occur in Ireland. Now, this mushroom is very poisonous. 
because it contains hallucinogenic substances. So it's lysergic acid, LSD, you know, the same thing. Lucy in the sky with diamonds that the people took in the 1960s, they tell me, and everything was wonderfully done. Now, apparently the reindeer eat this. And the reindeer keepers, the, the Lapland herders, the long dark nights minding their reindeer, were amazed at how, how much more animated their reindeer were after they'd eaten these mushrooms. But I presume they, they, they thought discretion was the better part of valor, or maybe some of them did eat them too, and do ill effects. But anyway, can you imagine this? It actually worked out that if you drank the reindeer's urine, you got the benefits of the LSD, without any problem of, 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 of being poisoned or taking too much or having it in too strong a doses. So they duly collected the stuff and drank that instead. And I'm sure they were very happy indeed, having had this modified version of the LSD. And maybe indeed they did very well see reindeers flying through the sky. Who's to know what it is? But um, certainly eating mushrooms of any description that you're not absolutely convinced are safe can lead to all kinds of trouble. I mean, if you eat berries and things, you know, you can get your stomach pumped and you feel too well for a while. But if you eat mushrooms that are bad, they go straight into your liver, into into that's part of your, your system, and you could be a week later dying of them. And I answer questions in the Irish Times about these things. But even if somebody sent me in a picture of them from Superquin saying, could you eat these? I'd have to say, I don't know. Because, I mean, if you, even if you say that you can, somebody will say, oh, that was in the Irish Times. I'll go off and pick something entirely different and say it was the same thing. So I never say you can eat anything. But certainly that one is unmistakable. It's red and it contains LSD. And you can't even guarantee that it contains a decent amount. It might contain a huge amount. And you wouldn't see the next day reindeers flying or anything else. So I admire this one from a distance. And if you must drink reindeer urine, apparently that's the way to go about it. I don't think the reindeer last hang around long enough on the roof for any of that sort of thing. Anyway, more birds. On to birds, sorry, more wildlife. Now, the robin, the robin is greatly associated with Christmas and everybody loves the robin. So there's a picture of a robin singing. Now, is this a boy robin? Or a girl robin, and this is the cash. This is the question. Now we know, we know from Mooney Goes Wild, the Million Dawn choruses, that the male birds are the ones that sing. So the birds that sing are actually the males. So if that's the robin singing, well, that's the male. That has to be the case because robins look exactly the same. The males and the females look the same. But at this time of the year, at this time of the year, you'll hear robins singing in the garden, and it could be a female either, because at this time of the year, the female robins will hold territory as much as the males. So a robin thing in the garden at this time of the year could be a male or a female. And in fact, robins are the only birds that sing in the wintertime. Now, this is because robins are hugely aggressive birds. So the robin will sing normally in the dawn chorus. The robin is holding territory. Keep away any other robins from coming in. This is my place and I'll be dug out here. And of course, looking for a wife, you know, tweet, 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 I'm lovely, marry me. But the trouble is, because the male and females look the same, the robin attacks any robin that comes in. Now, if another robin comes in, he attacks it, they attack back, and robins will actually kill each other. They're absolutely savages. And if it's a female that comes in in springtime looking for a hobby, she behaves differently. She doesn't fight back and the robin says what's going on here. And eventually it dawns on the mope that this is the love of his life. But at the same time, at the same time, what, um, go away. Now, at the same time, what happens is that, that in the wintertime, then the female and the male, in fact, at the, end, at the end of the mating season, when they finish rearing their young, at the end of the summer, they break up and 
they both want to hold territory. So in your garden, you might have the most wonderful, lovely, tame robin. But you're only going to have one. And it could be a male or it could be a female. It's difficult to know. In fact, you can't tell. You can't tell because don't have any outside appendages that can be looked at. I remember a small boy from Cork telling me, could he not look down and see whether he's a boy or a girl? But it doesn't happen like that with birds. It's all internal. So it's either the colour of the plumage or you don't know. And in the case of the robins, the robin expression is the better, it's not the better part of valour. The robin will attack any other robin that appears. So if you're feeding birds in your garden at this time of the year, you'll get a robin, but you won't get two. If another one comes in, the first one will see it smartly off the premises. So what they're doing on Christmas cards, I do not know. I mean, season of peace and happiness. Look at your cards and there's robins there and it's all and happiness me granny but robins would kill each other for sixpence i think it's because when they brought in the penny stamp way back in the middle of the 1800s and people were able to post things the postman wore red livery and poor devils in those days they even had to deliver cards on christmas day so the red coats became associated with christmas cards and this is why they put the robins on the cards to to be nice to the to be nice to the to the to the postman because everybody likes robins and they're, they're actually very um, very tame and people associate them with people that are gone and somebody that's dead maybe coming back in the spirit of the robin. Although in some parts of Ireland up to a couple of years ago, the robin was Santi's spy. He was keeping an eye to see where you good and he'd tell Santi if you weren't. Although I see now he's been he's been deposed by another of these mad American customs, the elf on the shelf. The elf is now going around telling Santi whether you're good or bad. Though I suppose the elf tells Santa rather than Santi. So the robin used to tell Santi in some parts, but County Loud, the robin wasn't a snake. He didn't he didn't tell Santi anything. But what we did have, and I'm sure a lot of people know this one, if I can get it to move again, is the wren. This one here. The wren is Stevens's day. Now the wren, the wren, the king of the birds, on Stevens's day was caught in the furs, up with the kettle and down with the pan, give me some money to bury the wren. But what was going on with the wren? And again, this is one where you have Christianity overtaking a more ancient and pagan custom. But the wren thing goes back an awful lot more than the robin. Robin really only goes back to the middle of the 1800s and the postman and the red coats. But the wren, the wren was associated with some of these um, Neolithic people. There was some crowds that adored the eagle and some crowds that adored the wren. So depending on the interpretation of the archaeological drawings and remains and carry on, they can tell which one is which. So the wren, the wren was associated with, with one group of them at any rate. And um, the wren was always considered to be a sneaky bird. I mean, you don't get wrens on bird tables. Wrens run around on the ground. They're, they're, if you look at them in the garden, they're on the ground. They're hopping into flower pots. They're picking peepy crawlies out of the, off the ground. They'll never be up on this. So on 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 on, on Stephen's day, then the, the story goes that... Um, St. Stephen, the first martyr, was escaping from the Roman soldiers and hiding in the hedge somewhere in Rome and under the ivy, apparently. And um, the wren jumped up and made a noise or squawked or fluttered or something and drew the attention of the soldiers to poor St. Stephen, who was hiding underneath and he was hauled out and executed and he was the first martyr for Christ. And that's why his feast day is the very first day after Christmas as an honour for this. And so the wren was given the blame. And this, you know, there's various variations of this um, story, this myth. I mean, if you lift different parts of Ireland, if, you know, the thing was that the soldiers were having a rest and Stephen was sneaking by and the wren jumped up and down on the soldier's drum and made a noise and woke the soldiers and they nabbed 
in Abstein. And so depending the, the, the means by which the wren snitched changes in different stories, but the story is always that the wren snitched on Stephen, and that's why on Stephen's day he's caught. Now the King of the Birds, that's another another um, bit of his his carry on as well, because the, the the birds apparently had a competition many, many, many years ago to see who was the strongest bird, the best bird, the king of the birds, whoever could fly highest up in the sky, that was the king. And they all flew up in the air and flew and flew and flew and up and up and up they went. And eventually one that was above all the rest who were collapsed and falling back to earth was the eagle. So the eagle was the one that could fly the highest. And then when the eagle could go no further, from underneath the eagle's feathers came the wren and the wren flew above the eagle and said, I'm the king of the birds, I've flown up the highest. And so this is why he gets the king of the birds, even though he did it by a sneaky means as well. So anyway, then he was captured. And long ago, they used to capture them. I remember Marion Finucane. God be good for Marion. I was on her show years and years ago, and she was saying she hated. She hated seeing the men topping up and down in the jar. And whatever part of the world she came from herself, apparently the tradition was that you caught, actually caught a wren, put it in a jam jar with a few holes in the lid and put a string around it and went around from house to house looking for money to bury the ran. So that the, 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 the rhyme was actually true. And it's 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 hung on, I think, in 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 Ireland, in the south, and in the west. I know um, there's been a revival of it in Dublin, in Sandymount, in recent times. But this whole story of the Wren boys and the Wren boys going out and gathering money to to kill to, to kill the Wren, we didn't allow to have much of that. What we really, what we had allowed were mummers, and mummers they dressed up in straw and they came around before Christmas, and this was a a tradition. He got in Wexford and places like that, and a northern tradition as well too. But it hadn't any wildlife associated with it, so I, I won't dwell on the on the mummers. But different traditions around these time, like the mummers and indeed the wren, go back go back earlier than Christianity, which is interesting. How poor old wren, who only was pulling the wool over the eagle's eyes, is now accused of causing the death of Saint Stephen, and thus must be persecuted every every year as a consequence of that. Now, we'll move on now to the three wise men. The three wise men came to the crib. You get all kinds of jokes nowadays about if three wise women came, they would have brought decent presents. But the three wise men, as we all know, they brought gold, frankincense and myrrh. And of course, these were very symbolic gifts. And gold gold is, is, is because the baby they were going to visit, they knew was a king. And gold was the present you gave to a king. But what about the, what was with the frankincense and what was with the myrrh? What was going on there? Well, now, frankincense is actually a resin. It's a hard resin that comes from a tree that grows around the Middle East called Boswellia Sacra. It's a particular type of thorny evergreen tree. And from, I, I scraped a picture of it off the internet. Hence, I wasn't there myself taking the picture. And this, this, this resin that comes out of it then is treated in such a way that it can be burnt to give the most wonderful smell and those of us of a certain age remember that we used to go to call it incense when we'd go to church, when we go to mass, and you'd go to you go to different benedictions and things. You'd have the smell of the incense and the thurible, and it was to show that the baby that they were going to visit was God, because incense was burnt to adore to adore a deity, to adore a God. So, it, but it came from a tree. It came from this Boswellia sacra tree, and the tree is still there, and they get incense from it still, apparently. Sure they do. So that was what that was about. And then, of course, there was also the myrrh then. What was the myrrh about? And again, the myrrh, the myrrh came from another tree. 
a mirror because it's a, it's, it's, it's a tree from which it, it again grows in these mountainous regions in Saudi Arabia and Yemen and Iraq and those parts of, and presumably all around Israel and Jordan and places like that. And again, this, this thing was more an oily, sappy sort of a resin that came out of the myrrh tree and it was made into a balm, into an ointment that was used for embalming the dead. Imagine if someone came to see your new baby with an ointment to embalm the dead. It certainly run them. But in the case of the three wise men, the symbolism of this was that the man that they were, the person, the baby they were visiting was a king, hence the gold was God, hence the incense, and was human as well and was going to die eventually because it was a human child. And the, the myrrh, which was dead bodies were embalmed in, this myrrh symbolized that as well. So it came, it came as also a product of a tree that grows there. I don't know, I don't hear too much about myrrh these, these days. Get the they get a run on if you turned up with any baby shower carrying that for a present. And again, and presumably a very expensive gift as well, too, because um extracting it and processing it and all the rest of it and whatever antibactericidal properties it had, it's the reason why the bodies would have been embalmed in those warm countries, you can imagine it wouldn't take long for decomposition to set in. So by embalming them in this particular ointment, it, 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 that was a preservative to a certain extent. So so the, the, the gifts of the wise men have a have a bearing on our on our wildlife as well. So there's the baby Jesus inside in the crib. And of course, we we know that he was laid in the manger. And the manger was the, the, um, the, the place, the trough, the feeding trough really for the animals and it was filled with with straw and hay or hay and whatever it was and that was what they, the animals did the ox and the ass were were to eat and so that there was nothing better for the poor baby jesus that he was put lying on this lovely on this lovely manger and of course you know in ireland in particular we couldn't let a good story go by unremarked upon so what were the plants that was were in the hay what kind of hay was it and what was the flowers and what were the plants so we have a couple of flowers in Ireland with with our lady's name on them. And these, of course, were flowers that were part of the hay that were in the manger on that first night. And chief among them is this yellow one here I'm showing you here. I'm sure you know it. This thing here is called gallium. And it's 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 lady's bed straw. Now, lady's bed straw has a very nice smell of it when it's dried. And lady's bed straw was collected and dried in hay when people's mattresses long ago were stuffed with hay rather than anything more salubrious, the lady's bed straw gave it a nice smell and a nice a nice fragrance for a while anyway, I suppose. And so it got its name Lady's Bed Straw because it was one of the herbs that was inside in the in the manger that first night on Christmas Eve. So as well as everything else was going on, there was some botanist there making a note of the plants that were in the manger and Despite the fact that this doesn't grow anywhere near that part of the world, this is a sand dune one, this is one we get in Ireland, this is probably an Irish take on what was in the manger, but that's where the name came from. Now, I was looking all of this up and it turned out that, in fact, the other, the other plant was bracken. And the bracken and the lady's bed straw, because they were in the manger and the baby Jesus was lying upon them, naturally enough, were very honoured to be in the presence of such deity because the plants all knew about this wonderful baby that had come amongst them and they were they were able to, to be aware and sensing about this. And of course, the, the, um, 
the yellow one did his bed straw was very, very honoured indeed that the Son of God had come to lie on the hay that she was in and she was all delighted about it and she got her lovely yellow flowers and a lovely perfume. But the bracken, the bracken wasn't going to have any of this nonsense at all. It was only a baby. He was having nothing to do with it. And so from that day to this, the bracken has been first, if you like. The bracken didn't get any hop at all. Bracken has no flowers. Bracken dies away in the winter time. Bracken is not wanted by people in general because the bracken didn't acknowledge on that night when the baby Jesus was laid on the hay of which the bracken was part. The bracken didn't realise or didn't want to know or wouldn't. Listen to the lady's bed straw telling him, and as a consequence, he's left in this condition. No, no flowers, not wanted, horrible smell, dies away, all sorts of things. That'll teach the bracken manners. We have other, we have other flowers there in Ireland. I mean, you could go mad on this. What's this? This is, this is Lady Smock. So, so you know, what's that in the crib too? It's everything with ladies on it in the smock, you know. But no, not at all. No, as you know, Lady Smock comes out in March, and. Cuckoo, cuckoo flower is another name for it, but it, it comes out at the end of March. Now, um, because Christmas Day was on the 25th of December, which is nine months after the 25th of March, which obviously was the day of the Annunciation because Our Lady was nine months pregnant. She wasn't early. She wasn't late. She came exactly on time. So obviously the deed happened on the 25th of March during the Annunciation. This is what the Annunciation was about. And these flowers come out near this, it's called Ladies' Day in a lot of places. It was one of the gale days in Ireland, one of the four quarter days where you paid your rent and things in the old days. And so it was Lady Day, that particular one. So the Ladies' Smock was a flower that came out near to this time of the year. So it gets the name Ladies', ladies Smock from that. It wasn't part of the crib. It wasn't part of the, the hay in the manger. So I'm, I'm glad we've cleared that up. Now, if we move on, I mean, I have to give a talk about this and laugh for how long. So I was scavenging around to see what would I do. So I thought about the 12 days of Christmas and we let, we'll have a look at the, the, the it was a fierce collection of birds sent to my true love. Now, this, this was actually a carol that was written in France in the 1700s in French. And it was transposed then and brought into England in the 1800s. So a lot of the birds originally might have had a French meaning or whatever. But the first one was a partridge in a pear tree, which is complete nonsense. Partridges don't go into pear trees. And pear is the French word for a partridge. And pear or something to do like that is the French word for. So the pear, the pear tricks, who was pear or something to do, was all to do with the partridge. When it was translated and brought into England, the English not being so good at the old French language anyway, had the partridge in the pear tree. So the pear tree's got nothing to do with it. And the partridge is the grey-legged partridge. The grey-legged partridge is native to, to these islands and indeed to France as well. Although our grey-legged partridges are nearly extinct now, they, they, they're doing work on them in Offaly, around Burabog and those areas to restore the grey-legged partridge. So really, when you look at the birds that we're talking about in the days of Christmas, it's really a very glorified shopping list. I mean, people ate partridges. So, you know, my have sent me a partridge, a nice fine partridge, and I had it for my dinner on the first day of Christmas. And then the second day we have two turtle doves. And turtle doves, again, um, bird, these were birds that were eaten. The turtle doves are, they've come into Ireland re relatively recently, maybe 50, 60 years ago we have them now. But they're, they're not very common in Ireland, but it would have been much more common at, in, in the, those times in France and, and in England to a certain extent. So again, these would be on the, these would be on the diet, these would be on the menu for Christmas. You'd eat two turtle doves. Now, what about the three French hens? 
Now, the three French hens is an interesting one because in France, apparently, the three French hens were the red-legged partridge, which I have shown you a picture there. Or the red-legged partridge occurs in the south of France, doesn't occur in Britain, doesn't occur in Ireland. So when they when they changed it over, they called it three French hens. Now, in those times, in the early 1800s, there was all sorts of breeding going on with hens and poultry. And you could get a very fine, nice chicken or hen from France to eat, which was much better than the scraggy ones we had in the, in the British Empire at that time. So the French hens, the French did everything better, including their hens. So rather than saying a red-legged partridge, the language of the English between the grey partridge and the red partridge was obviously too much. So they just call these things three French hens. But they're not any particular type of hen going around speaking in French. They were originally this, this red-legged partridge. Now, the four collie birds is interesting because the collie is a corruption of coley or, or black. And we know from Sing a Song of Sixpence, A Pocket Full of Rye, four and twenty blackbirds baked in the pie, that they do eat blackbirds. And the coley birds are blackbirds. So here's the poor unfortunate blackbird who was eaten. I mean, I was looking up and I was trying to tidy my study. I was thinking I should be making a good job in my study for the Christmas. And I found a cookery book that belonged to my husband's mother's granny or something, 1806. And the recipes for larks and for, for, for blackbirds and all kind of how to clean them and cook them and everything else. But they did actually eat these things, no bother to them, because obviously people were hungrier then and there was more abundance of these things. So four collie birds are the same blackbirds that were baked in the pie. And again, more food for my tulip to be eaten. Now, the five gold rings, obviously, <laughs> laid off on the poultry that day. But then we had six geese staying. Now, we talk about geese as as um, something to eat at Christmas time. It was the tradition, apparently, because geese are laying, so they wouldn't be laying at this time of the year. I mean, the whole idea of birds laying eggs comes with the <clears> lengthening <throat> day and the, the actual um, pineal gland in the, in the brain being stimulated by the lengthening light. So the geese are laying, I think, was just a, a poetic license. And... In the wintertime, we got lots of geese in these parts of the world. These are um, greylag geese. You get them on the bog. They, they feed in northern Europe. It gets too cold and too icy and snowy. And they wait, wait lots of them come down to this part of the world in, in the autumn time. And indeed, people had farmyard geese as well. So goose was what people ate. And these are greylag geese that you'd see around at this time of the year. But they only ate geese because the boar were all gone. Originally, the Christmas feast, the feast that celebrated Christmas because, I mean, we've had Christmas since about the third century at this time of the year, but presumably in the dark days of Saturnalia you had feasts as well. You ate wild boar and wild boar was a, an animal that was native to Ireland. The Irish word for a wild boar is turk. So we have the Mam Turks, we have Turk Mountain, you know, Turk is part of a, a place name in Ireland quite abundantly and we had these fellows here up to the Middle Ages and in Britain as well too, but they were all killed. I mean, they were, they were, um, you know, pretty fearsome creatures. They were fine lumps of meat and the woodlands in which they lived were diminishing as well. So when they were all made extinct and there was no there was no boar to eat any longer, we, we confined ourselves then to eating the geese. So the geese became the festive feast after that. And then, of course, we got very swanky altogether for 30, 40, well, I suppose it must be 60, 70 years ago now. And we began to become more American, the Americans themselves, and we began to eat turkey. And turkey is an American native species, you know, great, great lot of meat on it. And the original turkeys were these ones, the, the bronze turkeys, gobble, gobble, gobble. We used to 
be afraid of them. People used to keep them and run after you. You had a turkey cock who was absolutely huge and the turkey hens. And the white, the white turkeys only came in relatively recently compared to these ones because the white ones were bred, no wasting of energy, putting dye and colour into feathers and more and more and more bosom on them. The poor birds couldn't fly at all. White turkeys can't fly. These yokes could fly. And in America, in fact, they, they, they live in trees and places like that. They're, they're slimmer versions of them. But they were a feast brought back from America by the migrants that went and then adopted instead of the geese, which were adopted instead of the boar, as a festival to celebrate the time of year because festivals should be celebrated with food as well as everything else. And then we had the seven swans of swimming, and these were the swans that were swimming. They were not the mute swans, but these visiting swans, these hooper swans, again, that came in the wintertime, because um, if you think of the children of Lair, they were turned into swans that sang, and that we're here for 300 years and gone for 300 years. And there's lots and lots of Irish stories about women turning into swans and swans turning into women. And this whole idea that they migrated, they were gone for half the year and came back, had to be accounted for in some fashion. And so a lot of the, the fairy stories or the the, the 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 stories that we have, the nursery, not the nursery rhyme so much as the as the Hans Anderson, Christian Anderson tales and Grimm's tales with, with swans, and indeed lots of Irish stories with Cucullin and all of that and swans have to do with the fact that they were migratory ones. So the migratory swans have these yellow bills. They're not they're not the, the mute swans that we normally have in Ireland. There's the mute swan with the orange bill. They really only came in and again in the middle of the 1800s. They belonged to the Queen and they were part of festivals that the deity, that the um, kings in Britain used to have. So if you get accounts of Tudor feasts or things like that, they were eating swans. So to get a swan was was something good to be getting to eat. People ate swans very regularly. On, and and the, the queen swans, these mute swans who were here all the year round, all belonged to the, to, the, to the king or to the queen. And there were people to mind the swans and that sort of thing. The first swans in Dublin, apparently, were given as a present to the River Liffey by Sinjin Gogarty. Now, Sinjin Gogarty was one of the fellows around in Easter week, and he, he was the gentry. I mean, you might read about him in Joyce. He was a doctor and very much concerned with the poor of Dublin, to be fair to him now. But anyway, he fell foul of the IRA at the time, and they were after him, the Sinn Féin people, and um, he jumped into the Liffey and swam across to escape his pursuers. And as a token of gratitude, he donated a pair of swans to the River Liffey. And I thought that's raw, mate. It couldn't be so. But Mitchell Collins, who has a PhD in swans, um, he did he did a PhD on on, on mute swans. Yeah, they recommend he's right. This is when it did happen, you know. So now our Dublin swans are only there since then. Just to finish up with two things that you might actually see at Christmas. This is a real bird. This is the thing called the um, wax wings. Wax wings are around at the moment. It's a wax wing year. I was talking about this on Clareborn and somebody rang in to say there was a whole party of them in Dublin 8 as she spoke. Now, these occur in northern Scandinavia. They had a good year last year, loads of babies. And as a consequence, they've eaten all the berries in Scandinavia and they're coming down south and west. And they will come into your garden and gobble up all your berries. And they're gorgeous. Look at the colour of them. They look as if they fell into a paint box. They're yellow and they're white and they're pink and they've thing on their heads. And little red dots on their wings to show the wax wings, like the ceiling wax. And then finally, this is a picture of a murmuration of starlings. And again, this time of the year, we get an immigration. We get migration of starlings coming in from Europe. And they all fly around the sky at night before they land on, on bushes. So you'll only see that at this time of the year. You'll only see the wax at this time of the year. And the rest of them will be celebrating them as part of the Christmas tradition. For Amila Michael Thank you.
Listen, that, that was a bit of a marathon. That was absolutely fascinating and, 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 and brilliant. Uh, and uh, some of the comments that are coming in will remind you if you have any questions, some of the, the, the questions or the, some of the comments are coming in are just uh, uh, just wowed by, by the whole thing. So thank you very much. Um, yeah, I, I figured that. I figured that. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, I was just looking up some of the traditions and there's another one that ca ca came across is the, that seems to be quite Irish, even though we think it's a foreign one, is the, the tradition of the Yule Log, where it was about bringing in a, an actual big log, which you let in the fireplace and let it burn from one end to, to, to the other, pushing it in as it, as it went along. Uh, I just had so, to smoke in the kitchen with all of that. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It, it, I don't get past health and safety at at, at this point. <laughs> uh, so, but anyway, so uh, Yvonne, uh, if you will join us just to announce the winner, if if that's okay, just to to so that people know there is actually an Yvonne Mar behind that the the the, the, the scenes. <laughs> Hi, Yvonne. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Um, we'd just like to announce Mary O'Connor as the winner of Vena's new Wonders of the Wild book. <laughs> you have your copy. I have my copy here as well. So, yeah. Uh, so, so we'll, we'll send that on. I don't know if you have the, the address, but uh, we get the address immediately after and stick that straight into the post. Doubt if it'll get there uh, tomorrow, but uh, we, we can only try. And if not, it'll, it'll, it'll be appreciated next week. Catherine, any questions there? Uh, as you say, most mostly uh, compliments and uh, again, uh, all positive about the book. Um, uh, can I just ask one myself, um, Aina, or can I ask you to comment on the the lovely hedge behind me? And is it something we could be promoting? It's a good chance at this time of the year to promote people, you know, to grow it in the countryside rather than the non-natives around the houses. Any oh yeah, holly, holly is a great great thing to put in the hedge. The trouble with holly is that it is slow to get going. So, you know, people say, oh, it'll take ages for holly to grow. And it does it does take a while to get going. And unusually in Irish trees, we only have a few of them. There's male trees and there's female trees. And if you plant a male tree, you're never going to get berries on it because boys don't have babies. But, you know, think so but the native one will, will be either one or the other the one behind you patently is a female and you know it's not like apple trees where you have to have a boy and a girl nearby if you have a male in the one male tree seems to fertilize the whole parish so you don't need too many of them which is like chickens you can't sex them when you're buying them but if you buy a whole row of of, of whips and plant them you'll get a lovely a lovely holly hedge and it has the advantage of when it grows up it's impenetrable and you know it's burglar proof and all of that and of course the berries are wonderful for, for birds at this time of the year, thrushes in particular loves them. And the flowers, the male flowers and the female flowers are in insect pollinated. And so they both contain nectar. So even though the male ones only have pollen and the female ones only have a carpal, nonetheless, they both have nectar to attract insects to come to them. So the flowers are good for the birds. The berries are good for the birds. The hedge looks lovely and it'll keep out the burglars. It takes a while to grow, but put it in. You don't have to plant the whole thing in holly, but put holly in among other things and it'll certainly help. And Anna, maybe it's something people could do with a little bit of time over Christmas is to collect the berries and have a go at um growing them. Oh, yeah, have a go, have a go at growing them. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah. You, you keep them in the freezer and then take them out and plant them because they have to spend the winter, you know, before. 
before that. But you can, you can, you know, it's easy enough to grow them from berries. I mean, that's how, how it happens. So, you know, and they're lovely. There's lots, this year's a really good year for them because the sign from God, we're going to have a hard winter. So God sends us plenty of berries so the birds will have something to eat. Now, I'm afraid it's not a lesson in, it's not a lesson in, 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 in forecasting. It's a history lesson because obviously last year, as we remember, we had a really, really good June, plenty of good warm weather, insects about pollination obviously happened very well. And so we've lashed of berries. We had a lot of rain in the summer. The berries swelled. So we've a great crop of berries this year because of because of last spring and summer, not because the weather's going to be terrible. The weather may be terrible or it may not be terrible, but we can't we can't depend on the holly to tell us. Pat, last question. Um, and away from thinking of the new year now, Anna, when will the frogs start croaking at night in preparation for spawning? Haven't heard them yet. Well, I hope you hopefully you haven't, or the world's got <laughs> in the handcart. I mean, it's still the winter. Frogs hibernate, frogs hibernate, and then as the, the, the weather warms up, and again, it warms up quicker in Cork and Kerry, they could have them out in January. And if you look at my book on the section, where do frogs hibernate? At the bottoms of ponds. Come, they don't drown. How can they be there for two months? They have lungs like we do. How come they don't drown? I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to have a look at the book. But they will. it'll be the temperature. The temperature of the water will wake them up, the temperature around them. So it's a temperature thing with those. So the first lot will be out in Cork and Kerry, probably in January. The last lot will be out in Cavan and Monaghan. They're the coldest parts, and it could be March or April before you get frogs there. Unless we have a ferociously warm winter, and then they're all out. And, you know, the seasons are all, are all upset the, you know, because of this, the world is in the state of chassis on account of climate change, indeed. There's a question there about a plant that divides the, the, the nation a little bit. What What is the connection between the Brussels sprout and Christmas? I don't know. We have to do we have to do penance for our sins, I suppose. <laughs> Brussels sprout is one of these vegetables that will be coming into season when when it gets cold. So you have kale, which we always give to animals, but I see swanky people eating it now. And we had Brussels sprouts and cabbages and parsnips and celery. They were all the winter vegetables. I think what's wrong with the poor Brussels sprout is that whoever cooking it, you know, if boiling it for half an hour is good, boiling it for two hours is even better. And it's full of sulfur. It's just sulfur stuff that comes off the mother of God. But that's, the, it's just, you know, you can't have, Life isn't just turkey and ham and cranberry sauce. You have to have penance as well, and that's the Brussels sprouts. I, I think we, we've got your opinion on Brussels sprouts. Listen, thank you very much. We uh, Unfortunately, time has caught up with us. Uh, I know you have another appointment at, at 11 o'clock that you'll be rushing off to. Really appreciate the fact that you, you've joined us here this morning. It's been absolutely wonderful. And I hope our, our the people uh, tuned in have, have enjoyed it as, as much as we have uh, listening to you. So th thank you very much. Um, just to say thank you very much to, to all the people who've joined us all year. Uh, this wouldn't continue happening without... Uh, our audience, which has has uh, been amazingly good all year, and and uh, we appreciate it, and and hope you've en enjoyed what we brought you for, uh, for the year. We'll be taking two weeks off before our next uh, uh, webinar, which will be on the twelfth of January, when we'll have Nutfield uh, scholar Eva Feeney talking about uh, some work she's done on encouraging uh, farmers to prioritise actions for water quality, and that's going to be a real theme of of next year really trying to get down and start looking at, at uh, uh, taking action uh, to improve our water quality. It's, it's uh, really going to be a theme for, for next year.
You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.